0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Great to see you all. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. Easter sounds exciting, doesn't it? Yes. Now, how often do you go to church to get a six-pack? I mean, come on, that's, <laughs> that's unique. Pass out those invitations to people you know. It's going to be a great, great weekend. And if you are a regular attender at 10 o'clock, you don't want to come at 10 o'clock on Easter. There'll be too many people here. So, you don't, I mean, you, here, here's, here's kind of the rule. If you bring a guest... Come at 10. If you don't have a guest that you've invited and bringing with you, take one of the other services and go there. Uh, it's just it's, it's logistics. It's just very practical. You may not want to wait till 1130 because that will be the fifth time I've preached that weekend, and I'm not sure if there will be a resurrection. I, I can't predict what kind of shape I'll be in at that point. We may just all stay asleep. I'm not sure. So you, you understand. Welcome to you if you've joined us online today, so thrilled to have you with us. Welcome, glad you're here. We've been uh, talking about renewal and revival uh, since special occasions have happened at Asbury University last month and the the weeks following. Um, We are very excited about participating in what God is doing. Uh, We have assembled our kneeling rails here across the front and just to remind you that the altar is open. At any time during our services, uh, before, during, after the preaching, singing, whatever, uh, we want to invite you to commune with God any way that's meaningful to you. And if you'd like to come to the front and kneel, that's certainly an option. So feel free. The the altar is open and you'd be encouraged to participate. Today I want to talk about worship, kind of in the same theme. I want to teach a little bit. I'm not sure this is a proper sermon, but I want to teach just a little bit about worship and what, what we believe God expects of us when we gather together like this so that we're informed about it and can choose to engage in authentic ways. So I've chosen as our text today from the, from the Psalms, and I want to read Psalm 100 to us. From Psalm 95 through Psalm 100, th- these are exalted words of King David with regard to adoration and worship, and we can learn much from his example, and so the 100th Psalm is a, is a wonderful model for us. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So as you're able to do that, thank you. And the psalmist writes Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good, that's where an amen goes, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. May God inspire us through his word today. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Many of you have gone to see the Jesus Revolution movie, a movie about a spiritual awakening in California in the early 1970s, a move of God that has influenced this country and other parts of the world, you may not know that ticket sales has now surpassed $46 million. That's a, that's a big number for that kind of movie. Now, we ask the question, why is this striking accord with so many millions of people? So it's a good question, isn't it? And I think one that we should try to answer. Reverend Greg Laurie, a California pastor, who's a central figure in this movie, has uh, suggested, and I quote, we were created to worship And when you get down to it, every person on earth does worship. We don't all worship the God of heaven, but we all worship someone or something. It may be a sports figure, an entertainer, someone else. It may be a possession. But everyone bows at some kind of altar. You agree with that? I do. I agree with that. He continued, even atheists worship, skeptics worship, Republicans and Democrats worship, independents worship, everyone everywhere worships. It is the fundamental drive of life and one of the unique distinctions of humanity. One of the explanations for that, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 11, simply stated, God has placed eternity in the hearts of human beings. So all of us have an intuition. We have an instinct. We We have an awareness that we have been made by God and for God. Now, we may not know that consciously, we may resist the whole notion of it, but nevertheless, every human being, think about that, every person you know then is a person looking for God in some way. The persons that you will hand an invitation card to Easter, that person's looking for God. No matter what their public or private stance on faith and religion may be, they are made by God for God, every person. And this is a fact beyond their control because God's wired us all this way. And so all, we're we're all looking for that connection with the God who made us. St. Augustine in the 16th century said it this way. He said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's insightful, isn't it? Let me, uh, let me just uh, tell you this little story about a about a boy, he's five years old. He was at his house, middle of the summertime. His mother was just a short distance away in the kitchen, and the little boy was standing at a, at a sliding glass window looking out on the backyard. Thunderstorm was rolling in, and so the mother was a little concerned about all of that. And then suddenly, a bolt of lightning literally came and, and exploded 30 feet away from the house in the backyard. You can imagine the thunderous sound and the sparks flying and the whole thing. And so the mother went racing over to her five-year-old boy, imagining that he would be traumatized seriously by this moment because it's happened right in front of him. But before she could get to him, she saw him do this. He steps back like this, raises his hands in there and goes, Cool, God! <laughs> well, he, he was on to something there. He's on to something with regard to worship. Let me just give you the most basic definition of worship that occurs to me. Look on the screen with me. Worship defined. Here it is. Worship in truth and spirit is simply experiencing or encountering God. It's connecting with God some way. Let me suggest also that through personal study over the years and prayer and experience, observation, I want to offer This definition, that a worship service is convened for two primary reasons. One, to serve God, and the second is to serve people. Serve God, serve people. I want to unpack that this morning. Worship is to be to God and for people. Focused on God and focused on people. Healthy, vibrant, dynamic, fulfilling worship incorporates both of these issues. Now, let's unpack these two things. The first one, again, is to serve God. And we might just add to that, serve God with praise. The scripture is filled with all kinds of words of praise. As I mentioned, the Psalms are filled with these kinds of exalted words and and adorations. It's very exciting. Let me just uh, quote some scholars uh, from history. First is Tim Keller. He's a contemporary. He said, worship is seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth. That's helpful perspective. Listen to J.R. Packer. He wrote, I've experienced God's presence most powerfully in worship, often during the singing, I suppose, because when we sing to him, we're looking hard in his direction. Good perspective. Karl Barth, uh, perhaps one of the greatest theologians of the last century, wrote, Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can take place in human life. Finally, Archbishop William Temple summarized why the worship of God is the only thing that saves us, claiming the whole person when he wrote, the world can be saved by one thing, and that is worship. For to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination By the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God and to devote the will to the purpose of God. It's a very thoughtful consideration. Heard the story of a man who once dreamed that an angel escorted him to church one Sunday. He had a dream. Angel takes him to church. There he saw the organist and the pianist playing vigorously, the choir singing beautifully, but nothing was heard. Follow it. When the congregation sang, it was as someone had pushed the mute button. And when the minister stood behind the pulpit, his lips moved, but there was no sound. So bewildered, the man turned to his angel escort. And the angel said to him, this is the way it sounds to us in heaven. You hear nothing because there is nothing to hear. These people are engaged in a form of worship, but their thoughts are on other things and their hearts are far away. I wonder, has heaven heard your worship today? Has heaven heard our worship today? It's challenging, isn't it? Very challenging. So let me, let me just remind us that God wants more than a dutiful, dignified, doctrin, doctrinally sound requirement from us. So I went to church, you know, check the box. It's much more than that. While worship should have intellectual content, artistic quality, the danger that can come to us is that we become performance oriented. You know, people on the platform performing for people in the pew, and that corporately we become the performers and God is the audience. It's a bad definition of worship. It's a definition that is often taught, even in the universities and in the seminaries, about what worship is. But performance is not worship. Not at all. In fact, that's what the pagans do. Pagans perform for the God they serve. They wear the right uniform. They say the right words. They shake the bones. They burn the candles. They, they do the chants. They, they appease God. They offer sacrifices. That's what pagans do. The God we serve is not looking for appeasement. He's not looking for extra attention. The God we serve, the God serve is looking for relationships. And so God actually wants from us love and warmth and a fulfilling intimacy, a simple emotion of connection with him. Now, I'm not talking about trading, you know, the objective adoration, the thoughtfulness for some shallow, you know, half an inch deep subjective kind of emotional experience, but but rather an intellectual content with a sensitive emotional element. I can tell you that for 40 years, the way that we've designed our worship services here uh, is with two things in mind. One is to provide a thoughtful, intellectual approach to the, to the description of God's truth and his will and ways. With an opportunity to engage with God in a personal, real, personal, thoughtful, warm intimacy. So that I can experience God. The definition of worship, again, let me just remind you, is to experience God. To encounter God. So the bite that comes to some of us, the cost, if you will, that comes with a more open, expressive, intimate, emotion-filled kind of worship is that we must overcome our fears. Now, some of us, some of us have, have anxiety around the whole subject of intimacy. We don't do intimacy well generally. Uh, if you have a personality type like mine, uh, emotions themselves are hard to comprehend. And I, don't, I have to ask my wife what I'm, what I'm feeling. This happens to me all the time. I said, how do you think I'm doing? She said, oh, you're happy. <laughs> Sweet. It's good to know. <laughs> you know, I laugh, but some of us are wired that way. And so, you know, to talk about intimacy with God and worship, you know, look, I'm not intimate with anybody let alone God. And so, and, and so it's a challenge. That's about 30% of the people I'm talking to right now. There are 70% of the people that I'm talking to right now, approximately, who do emotions very very well. In fact, that's how you operate. You go through the world feeling stuff all day, every day. And so it's a, the barriers are less for you. So I give you this invitation, and you should embrace it openly and warmly, that God wants intimacy with you, a fulfilling relationship that's warm and loving that's that's his desire for you in worship but there is a there is a bite for all of us there is a cost if you will that ultimately will lead us to confrontation with worship's foundational requirement there is a basic requirement we've talked about renewal and revival in the in the past several weeks and we know that the individual condition and the corporate condition necessary the requirement necessary to receive renewal, personally, corporate, spiritual renewal, the, t- the two things required are humility and brokenness. You've, you've got to posture yourself so you admit, I need, I need help, I need more, I need, I need God to touch my life. I, you know, this, the last few years have been hard, and it seems like it's getting harder, and it's confusing, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of losing my way. I need, I need renewal. And the only way to posture yourself to receive of that is to humble yourself and to admit your need. So that's, that's the qualifier, the condition for personal renewal, but the condition for authentic worship, listen, is sacrifice. Let, let, let me explain. Jeremiah thirty three eleven says it this way. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. That's just a, a part of the phrase of that verse. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. Now, what's going on here? Well, sacrifice has always been at the heart of all worship. In fact, in the old covenant days, Old Testament times, if you brought a sacrifice to the temple for worship or to the tabernacle in the wilderness for worship, everyone knows what the sacrifice was. This was an animal of, of some variety and you brought the animal for the sacrifice of worship. And the animal sacrifice gave its life. The priest would, would would butcher this animal. The blood would flow. This was the sacrifice. So Jeremiah says, you bring the sacrifice, what? Of praise into the house of the Lord. Now, how, do, how does that apply to our day and our moment? Well, the price... In the old time was blood, and blood actually is symbolic of and representative of. The implication is you bring the animal, shed its blood, we bring ourselves, not to literally die, but to die to ourselves. Worship requires the sacrifice of our lives. In order to be an authentic worshiper, you have to surrender your life to God. This is where it gets really quiet in the room. It means that we lay down our lives to serve him. So worship requires a death, a death to self, to personal interest, to your own personal control, to your own issues of pride, to your own issues of self-sufficiency, to your own issues of independence. There's a cost to authentic worship. And the cost is you. Let me give you some biblical examples of this. With Abel, back in the Garden of Eden days, and with, with the original first family, Abel, it meant an animal's blood. He brought to, to an offering moment animals from his flocks. His brother Cain brought crops from his fields. He chose the beauty of the bloodless, wasn't acceptable. With Abraham, it meant circumcision. Okay, this is the mark of the people of God to circumcise the males? Wow. Well, all of society around Abraham and his original tribe mocked the mutilation of Abraham's mark of circumcision. What are you people doing? It's bizarre. With Israel, it meant the Passover. That first Passover in Egyptian bondage when Moses prophesied, listen, Slaughter the perfect spotless lamb, spread the blood of this lamb over the doorpost of your house, and death will pass over. The Egyptians scorned the bloody doorposts of the Israelis. And the rest is history. With David, it meant exuberance. You may recall that King David sought for years to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. The Ark is that box that Moses constructed in the wilderness, Raiders of the Lost Ark that ark. So when, they, when, when David finally arranged to have the ark brought into Jerusalem, he was so thrilled that day. He was so excited that day that he stripped down, he took his outer robes off and he's down basically to his tidy whities and he's dancing in front of the whole city as the ark is brought into town. He's happy. He's exuberant. He's worshiping. Thank you, God. What a wonderful moment that the symbolic presence of God now has entered into the city and into the, into the nation. And he was happy about it. His first wife, Michael, who was a daughter of Saul, the original first king of Israel, he's married to her, and she's watching him from a palace window, dancing around in front of everybody in his worshipful exuberance. And so when he gets home that night, she gives him the business. What were you thinking? You're out there running around in your underwear in front of all these women, and you're an embarrassment. You've embarrassed yourself, you've embarrassed me. And she just works him over. And David looks at her and says, Look, honey, I'm not the problem. You're the problem. I worship God with all of my heart. I worship authentically. And I'm and I'm not gonna let you or anyone else tell me how how I can worship. I'm not the problem, you are, he said. The last, the, the, this is the telling part, most telling part of this whole story. The last verse of that context, we have this simple statement, and Michael remained barren all the days of her life. She never bore a child. We don't know if God cursed her for her repudiation of authentic worship Or if David simply withheld conjugal relations from her. Either way, barrenness was a horrible price to pay for her sense of dignity. And let me just tell you, and and I'll hear it for myself, that spiritual barrenness is a horrible price to pay for any of us to maintain our dignity and avoiding authentic worship. Not a good idea. Not a good choice. With Jerusalem's multitudes, it meant Psalms, Palms and, and, and shoutings of praise. This was the original Palm Sunday. We'll celebrate that next week. Jesus came riding in on a donkey, and people were laying palm branches and their cloaks in front of him, saying, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me tell you who was upset about that exuberant worship, the Pharisees, the religious folks, the dignified folks. They go to Jesus and say, tell these people to shut up. This is undignified and inappropriate. Jesus said, I don't know, you guys are all messed up. This is not only appropriate. Worship is going to happen here today. And if these children aren't crying out, the very stones upon which we stand will cry out. Because worship, authentic worship is happening here today. With Pentecost participants, it meant supernatural praises, 120 men and women in the upper room in Jerusalem 50 days after the Passover on the day of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit falls on these people, and they are exuberant in their praises. They are authentic in their worship, and they spill out on the street, and these authentic worshipers who we all look uh, from a distance now from history going, "Wow, wow, what a great moment for them. Wow, what a what a great day for the for the church. Wow, wow, wow. But how did the people respond to them on the street? These people are drunk. Look at these people, they're drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning and they're drunk. They weren't drunk, they were just worshiping. Lord, just one time would people leave this church and people think they're drunk. Uh oh. With Peter, it meant a totally new priestly order involving you and me. Peter concludes, look, here's what God is doing with regard to worship. He is causing each one of us to become living stones, one built upon another into a holy temple that will serve God in authentic worship forever. The people of God now becoming the habitation of God, the place from which authentic worship comes. So the fact is that authentic worship challenges the culture, because when most people in our culture, when they think you know worship service, they think dull, stale, boring, perfunctory, non-emotional. Well, that kind of that kind of worship is not not intended for thoughtful, thoughtful Christians, proper Christians. Now, the same person who assumes that posture will go to a Colt game and unload, or go to a high school basketball game and people think they've lost it. You know, in American culture, we don't think of church as a place to express our emotion. But there are places that are more acceptable. You pay five bucks at a high school basketball game and you can act like the greatest fool who's ever lived, and no one even thinks a second thought. What is happening? Makes you wonder. You're, wow, look at you. Your team must have won. Oh, no, we got beat. But I, for some reason, I feel a lot better. <laughs> so it challenges the culture and it nurtures humility, which I've described, to relinquish the reins of control in our lives. I don't have to be in control of everything all the time. I can actually let myself into a relationship with God and with others that's authentic and warm. It creates a climate of warmth and acceptance, not only of God, but one another. It fosters commitment. You know, expressive worship, authentic worship demands participation. And if you're participating, that means you're making a commitment to the process. It's actually very helpful. If you're not participating, then you just become a placid observer. And being in this room does not make you a worshiper. The only way that you become a worshiper is to the degree that you actually encounter God. You experience God. That's what makes you a worshiper. Worship is, in spirit and truth, the experience, the encounter with God. That's the basic definition. We serve God with praise, and we allow God to meet the needs of his people with his sufficiency and power. That's worship. That's what it, that's what it means. Otherwise, you become this observer and a, and a judge of what's going on around you, And so people come in, you don't engage, you've got nothing else to do but, you know, wonder about the people around you or wait for the pastor to say just the wrong thing at the wrong time so that you can accuse them of something. Come on, let's not do that. Seriously, you have other things to do. So we serve God with praise, he's worth the praise. And the second thing is we serve people with his sufficiency. So additionally, a Bible-centered approach to worship Uh, clearly reveals that God's not interested in the attention. This This isn't about God building in a device to somehow make sure that people are stroking his ego. Let me just remind you, God doesn't need anything we have. He doesn't need anything. He desires relationship with us. He desires intimacy with us. He desires trust and faith, confidence from us. But he doesn't need anything. There are people who push against Christianity saying, well, God's just a big egocentric, you know, uh, uh, lacking self-awareness kind of, kind of God. He's got a lot of frailties in there because he's demanding this worship from people. Let me tell you why God demands worship, because he knows it's good for us. He knows we need it. So he organizes it for our benefit, not because he needs it. What a great God. What a wonderful God. Look at Psalm 16, verse 11. In his presence is fullness of joy. The Bible says that we're two or more gathered in his name. There he is in the midst of them. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. And so when we get together like this, the presence of God is among us. And this brings joy and this brings hope. This brings life. That it's, that's why it's so meaningful. Meaningful. That's why it's so good. It's so redemptive. God wants worship to serve him and to fulfill his people. God's actually right now in this room and people watching online releasing people, redeeming people, renewing people, restoring people, because that's what happens in his presence. And his presence is activated. It's realized in the context of worship, authentic worship. It's a big deal. Let me remind you of some of the biblical references. Hebrews 10.25 reminds us to assemble ourselves together. He calls us together because we're created with enormous potential for fulfillment when we gather together in his love. Some other scriptures, Psalm 96 verse 1, it says, sing unto the Lord. And so when we gather, we sing. Not to increase our cultural awareness or our musical skills, but because singing is a natural expression of human joy and love. It helps us to connect with God. One of the one of the earmarks of the Asbury revival, you know, those 15 days, 24-7 for 15 days, it was a student-led kind of event. And and different teams of students would actually lead the worship. And those of you who were able to go to Wilmore and attend some of these services came back and reported, you know, the worship was so it was so meaningful. It was so intimate. It was so wonderful so peace-filled, so joy-filled. And then another commentary you would hear is, you know, some of these kids couldn't sing a note. They weren't very good on those instruments. And it didn't matter. It's not about that. Not about the performance. Never, ever. Now we should do our best and, you know, try, and excellence honors God. We get all that, but it's not about that. And so we learn from that. Then in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following, it says continuing in prayer, sharing and submitting to the apostles' teaching. So our worship services also contain these elements of prayer because we believe God's not too busy to listen. He hears our prayers. We preach the gospel, open his word to inspire, uplift, stir faith, stir hope. That happens. That's why we have this element. We give, designed to release us from selfishness and to allow us Entrance into God's covenant blessings in our lives. We want to open the windows of heaven. And so so these are all elements that we put in a worship service, and they're all biblical in nature. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, your spiritual form of worship. And so we bring ourselves. We bring the sacrifice of praise. We bring our lives. We bring ourselves into the worship. We surrender our own lives in order to engage authentic worship so that we might know the will of God what is good is acceptable and perfect. Romans one two twelve two. Years ago I took my first trip overseas and I was gone for three weeks. I missed my family. Our boys were twelve and five years old at the time, and so after three long weeks, uh, I was coming home. This is back in the day when you could still go to the gate at the airport to greet people getting off a plane, and so Beth and the boys had assembled there at the Indianapolis airport. We were looking forward to it. What if, what if I had walked into the concourse off that plane after those weeks away, and my family were sitting in the chairs there some feet away. They saw me. And then what if my wife had turned to the boys? They're sitting there very calmly, properly. What if my wife had turned to the boys and and said, all rise? (laughs) And they start, they've been practicing this Gregorian chant. And they start singing, Daddy's home. Daddy's home. (laughs) You know, they light candles. (laughs) They're both wearing special hats. (laughs) Now, I've just gotten home. What am I going to think about these guys? I know what I'm going to think. What the heck's the matter with them? One of them reads a poem. <laughs> what if, on the other hand, I walk into the can- corn course and there they are and they see each other and Beth immediately hands one of them a drum with a stick and the other a, a tambourine. <laughs> and they jump up and they go crazy. They're running around the room, they're shaking the tambourine, they're beating this drum. Daddy's home, daddy's home, daddy's home. Whoa, daddy's home and they're just screaming and Beth is dancing around, completely obliv- oblivious to anyone else in the room. People are going, "Jeez!" But I'm still standing there watching. There goes the drummer. What am I going to think about that? I'm going to think the same thing I thought if they were, you know, Lighting candles. What does it matter with these people? I'm over here. I've been gone. I'm right here. Let me tell you what happened that day. I s- stepped one foot into the concourse and they, the, both the boys were standing on either side of the door as it were watching people come out. That's not him. That's not him. That's not him. That's not him. And as soon as I appear... As soon as I emerged, Isaac, who was five years old, he just grabbed my leg, just wrapped my leg up, just grabbed me like this and held on to me. And Aaron, who was 12, he just, on the other side, he came and he nestled nestled his head right under my shoulder right here and just wrapped his arms around me and held me. You know, and and now we're bottlenecking, you know, so I I remember going like this (laughs) so people could get out. And Beth walked straight up to me, right up to my face, and she kissed me on the cheek, and she whispered, she said, welcome home, and put her arms around me. And there were the four of us just standing there. Now, as insufficient as these kind of human illustrations might be to describe our relationship with God, let me just offer this suggestion. In that moment... We were experiencing worship. That, is wor- that was worship. That was it. That was it. What did they need? They needed to serve me. What did I need? I needed their warmth. I needed their their affection. I needed their intimacy. Worship very simply. Sometimes the most profound comes in the simplest ways. Worship is simply serving God with praise, with humility, sacrifice, and love to serve God with our praise and to allow Him to meet our needs with his sufficiency and power. To worship in spirit and truth is to experience God this way. And so now you know the cost of it, the application of it, and the value of it. May God not only give us ears to hear, but a heart to practice authentic worship for Jesus' sake and for our own. In his name, amen. amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your word which lamps our feet, lights our way. Thank you so much for the invitation to worship you, to encounter you, to engage you, to experience you. Lord, it's so reassuring to us that you're not distant and that somehow you need to be impressed by us or, or entertained by us or somehow need to be proven from us but rather you just open your arms to us and you invite us into your presence so Lord help us to have the courage we need the conviction we need the humility we need to enter into your presence with thanksgiving in our hearts and into your courts with praise for Jesus sake in his name we pray and everyone said would you stand with us